0: Choices. Choices make a difference, right? Choices have consequences. We try to teach this to our kids when we're parents. You know, I I can look my son in the eye and say, jumping off the treehouse onto the trampoline is not a good choice. That choice will have consequences. Number one, you're not going to make it. Number two, if you do, the results will be broken bones or broken something. And, And so his choice makes a difference. This week, Susie had made herself a special coffee and she, she loves coffee and um, one of the kids was sneaking over to mess with her coffee. Oh, no. Son, make good choices. <laughs> Your choice is about to have a consequence <laughs> that you may not be looking at. And, and we laugh about this, but this morning we come to a very weighty section of doctrine that deals with the results of our choices here on earth, of our decisions specifically, what do we do with Jesus Christ? What do we do with the truth of His death, His resurrection, in our place for our sins? Because if we choose to repent of our sins, acknowledge that He is God, and believe on Him, we have an eternal state that is completely different than if we choose to reject Him and reject who He was in His work on the cross. And that's not an easy thing to talk about. We like to talk about heaven, and we'll talk about that this morning, but in in my conversations with people, hell is not necessarily one of those things we like to talk about as much. The results of that second choice. But yet we're going to find this morning that it is over and over mentioned in the Bible. And it it is something that Jesus talks about at great length. But I think we're at, a, at an interesting place in culture, and I, I don't think this is new. It just has come back up again. There's nothing new under the sun. But in culture, we don't like to, to have consequences for our choices, right? We, in fact, try to get out of those consequences, and, and we often don't hold people accountable for their decisions and their choices. And the same is carrying over into to Christianity, a, a, a former evangelical pastor, Rob Bell, wrote a book called Love Wins, and he was dealing with this aspect of choices in heaven and hell, and he wrote this. At the heart of this perspective, his perspective on hell, is the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt away every heart, will melt every heart, hard heart heart, And even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. Anyone have issues with that statement? Will everyone end up in heaven? No. At our community group this week, I was sharing this view that that some have this view. And and my dad was listening to me. I'll use my dad. and, And he didn't realize I was sharing someone else's view. he thought i was sharing my view <laughs> there were about to be dire consequences <laughs> to a choice i hadn't made <laughs> um, but that's how important this is and that is one of the the battles that we are facing in christianity in america today this tendency to say my choices don't matter and this comes from a whole world view, or a whole theological view called universalism which says that all will be saved eventually. Now, there's various flavors of universalism, but all will be saved eventually, and our life here on earth is not our final chance. In fact, we'll get chances later and more chances later because eventually all will be saved. And that is heresy. It was early promoted by Origen. It's come and gone throughout the church and always been refuted as heresy. Because in the end, that kind of view completely destroys the need for evangelism, for sharing the gospel. It, it really destroys having to deal with the decision of what are you going to do with Jesus. All universalists believe that there is another chance or more chances after death to, to, to choose Jesus. But the Bible never says this. In fact, it teaches very clearly and very directly just the opposite. And so we come to this subject this morning with with a sobering reality that these are weighty issues. That we don't like to talk about death and judgment and hell. But we come to it seeking scripture and seeking what God has to say about these. And so as I mentioned last week, part of teaching about this is we would like to put this section in our Constitution. These statements in our Constitution um, one to combat the heresy we're seeing rise in the church today, and to specifically state what we believe God's word says about these things. And so last week we started by giving a summary statement, and this summary statement we are proposing be put in our essential beliefs. That this is a, a statement that we as a, is essential for unity in our church, for orthodoxy in our church. We believe in the bodily resurrection of all men. The saved to eternal life and the unsaved to judgment and eternal punishment. Simple statement. um, Most of it word for word right out of um, some of the Scriptures that we looked at last week. And you're welcome to, to look at that a little bit more. But it directly answers the question, does everyone go to heaven? No. No. Those that choose Christ go to heaven. Those that reject Christ to eternal punishment. And we we mentioned a couple definitions. I put them in your notes again today. The intermediate state and the eternal state. And that will be helpful now today as we go through some of the specifics and some of the details of what does that eternal life mean? What does that eternal judgment mean and punishment mean? And those two definitions, one is the intermediate state. And the intermediate state is that point between when I die and when my body is resurrected and reunited with my soul. So when I die, what happens to me? If I was to fall over dead right here during the service, sorry, sort of a morbid thought, but what would happen? And and As we'll see, my soul would immediately be in the presence of God, my body would still be here, but at a future time, God has promised a resurrection where he reunites the soul and the body. That's the intermediate state, is that point in time. The eternal state is all eternity after the resurrection when our soul and body is reunited. Does that make sense? S- simple description. But when we, when we say eternal, some um, books will call it the final state. Um, those are some of the things that we mean as we, we talk about those aspects of theology. Today we get into a very specific statement about the, the final state of those that believe, that those that are saved and the final state of those that are not saved. And what we are proposing is that in our Constitution, these two statements be put in our distinctives because they outline in more detail some of the nuances of the the doctrine that all should believe the summary statement. And in the nuances, we recognize that there may be differing opinion, but we want to say this is strongly what we believe. And so we would recommend putting that in our distinctives. The first statement, number one there, as we deal with heaven, we believe that the souls of the saved are at death, absent from the body and immediately present with the Lord in eternal, joyful fellowship where they await the first resurrection at Christ's return when soul and body are reunited and changed into their glorified, imperishable state forever to be with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. Got all that? What I'd like to do this morning is just take it phrase by phrase and look at some of the verses um, for each phrase. Now, I'd like to look as as much scripture as we can this morning, but we've put in your notes more scripture than we'll be able to look at this morning. So I encourage you this week to look up every one of those passages, to read the chapters around those passages and get the context. Um, this morning, I know last week we turned to a lot of, of verses. Um, you're welcome to do that. They're all in there but I'm also going to put them on the screen this morning. It was suggested that might help just get through more Scripture. And so, um, but don't just trust what's on the screen. Please go back and look through the Bible, and um, you're welcome to, to look up any of the verses. So as we break this down, the first point is, remember we're talking in this statement about the souls of the saved, about those that have repented of their sins and chosen to follow Jesus Christ with their lives. It's very important that that is the, the, the foundation of this first statement. This only applies to those people. The second statement applies to those that have rejected Christ, that have not done this. And so this morning, as we study this, I encourage you to not just think of this as an academic exercise, what do these statements mean, but realize we are talking about the eternal destiny of every soul on this planet. That give you a little bit of chills? should. It's a weighty topic. And so that eternal destiny is what we're grappling with in this, this doctrinal statement. The next phrase there is absent from the body and immediately present with the Lord. And what we're talking about is that death, we believe that the soul becomes immediately present with the Lord and the body goes to the grave. The body stays here. But this is a conscious presence of eternal joyful fellowship with the Lord. A couple of verses that we want to look at. Luke 23, 43. Luke 23, 43. Is that readable? Oh, okay. Back there it's not so readable. And he said to him, and this is the, the context is Jesus is on the cross, the, the thief is next to him, and, and the, the two thieves, and one of the thieves says. When you enter your kingdom, remember me. Or remember me when you enter your kingdom. And so Jesus is responding to that when statement, a a, a statement of timing, and and he's responding with an answer to him. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today, that answer is the when, Today you will be with me in paradise. It's a significant passage, especially in in the, the scene of the crucifixion. and and that Jesus would even care enough about this person hanging on the cross next to him while he's suffering and dying. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. The word for paradise means garden, and it was often used to refer to the presence of God. Being in the realm of God. And so it would refer to the presence of God that believers experience immediately at death. Sometimes they called paradise the eternal place of bliss for the righteous. Remember when Paul had the vision in 2 Corinthians? He he said, I I went to paradise. And he was speaking of heaven, the abode of God. He used that same word. And just to... We'll try to clarify some terms. When we think of heaven, and when we hear heaven in Scripture, there's a couple of different ways that it can be read. Two major ways, some other... um, Sideways, But the two major ways are, one, it could mean the sky and the stars. Now, I know we don't see that here. There are still stars. And if you go to the mountains, you see the heavens, right? And so that's one of the ways that this word is used. The other way that this is used is a general description of the abode of God. Where God dwells. And so it's actually a a pretty large picture of the, the dwelling place of God. You see things like that when, when in Matthew 6-9. When Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray, He says, Our Father in heaven. And He's referring to the abode or the dwelling of God. Often throughout Scripture, Matthew ten thirty two is just one, um, Jesus says uh, in that verse, So everyone who acknowledges uh, Me before men, I also will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. We know from John 3.13, Jesus came from heaven. So it was this general term referring to the the abode of God. I'm not going to try to describe it in detail today. Um, The realm of God is something we get little windows into. And what we will do is talk about the new heaven and the earth today. new, New heaven and new earth. But Jesus here is specifically telling the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's a timing word. It's not someday in the future. A couple of other verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Yes, we are of good courage. There we go. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And Paul had this concept that as soon as we're away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. He says the same thing in Philippians 1, 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And so these verses are in there, and this statement is in there very specifically to say we don't believe in the doctrine of soul sleep. The doctrine of soul sleep says when you die, your consciousness and your soul um, sleeps or is in a, a state of suspension until the resurrection And then you wake back up figuratively and join with your body and continue on. But we have evidence in Scripture that to be absent from the body is immediately present with the Lord. What a joyful thing to be able to say when a saint has gone home to be with the Lord. That we can say with certainty, they are with Jesus. They are in His presence. They are at His side. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, and we'll get to that when we talk about hell a little bit more. It's a story Jesus told, but what He describes is this intermediate state of Lazarus in in, um, eternal joy with with God and the rich man already in torment. And they're able to, to be conscious and know what's going on. Moving on in the statement, the next phrase is eternal joyful fellowship this is a really important to to remember, is that when we are absent from the body, those that are saved, immediately present with the Lord in joyful fellowship. It's not this this depressing, shadowy thing. It's not purgatory. But it's joyful fellowship in the presence with God. In Philippians 1.23, the verse that is still up there, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. And it's interesting to see Paul's description, for that is... Far better. It's better than anything that we experience here on earth. There is joy. It's, it's it's going to be an experience that is beyond our comprehension, but better than anything here. Psalm sixteen ten through eleven is another verse that is helpful here. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a great description of being with Christ. Fullness of joy. Completeness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. And this this isn't a a selfish, I get what I want, I'm going to have Dr. Pepper forever. This is pleasures of being with Christ. True pleasure. True joy. And so we believe that to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord in eternal, joyful fellowship. Moving along, the next statement says, where they await the first resurrection at Christ's return. And so we believe that after we, we die, we are um, in our, our intermediate state where our souls are with the Lord. Let me go on here. And then at Christ's return, we, our bodies are resurrected here on earth and rejoined with our souls, because for all eternity, we actually will be body and soul. But it'll be a different kind of body, a glorified body, and we'll get to that with the next phrase. But so Christ's return is the beginning of the first resurrection. And as we'll see today, there's a first resurrection for the believers, there's a second resurrection of the unsaved. And this first resurrection starts in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17. And this first resurrection of believers is actually a two-phase resurrection, just to stretch our brains a little bit, where you have the, those that have died and are on earth now before the tribulation resurrected at the rapture, and then you have those that did not take the mark of the beast in the tribulation that are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. Both of those events together are called the first resurrection. So in 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's part of the first resurrection. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And there you see that always be in the presence of the Lord in that joyful fellowship. But what he's describing here is when Christ comes back, His second coming, those that are dead, those that have already died, they'll be resurrected together. And any believers that are currently living at the rapture will then be also be caught up and join with Christ in heaven. And that's the first resurrection. Now our church has a... a We hold to a a pre-tribulational rapture. And so that's what we're presenting is a pre-tribulational rapture where this first resurrection is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. We don't have time this morning to cover every aspect of that. But I encourage you to look through our doctrinal statement and talk to us. And we'd love to talk more about that. But turn to Revelation 20. And I'm not going to put the Revelation passages on the screen. We're going to stay around Revelation 19, 20, and 21 for um, many of the, the points this morning. So when we go there, I'll have you... Um, we'll just read together out of the Bible. Revelation 20, 4-6. And this passage talks about the, the second phase of that first resurrection. Those that have not taken the mark of the beast through the tribulation. Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, second part of the first resurrection, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And we'll get to that in our second half when we talk about the second resurrection. But he's talking about this. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. And they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. It's in our statement We say they await the first resurrection at Christ's return. When soul and body are reunited and changed. And changed into their glorified, imperishable state. So as we think of the eternal state, and and we're resurrected, and our bodies are resurrected with our souls, the good news is, it's not the same body. It's, It's changed. It's glorified. It is imperishable rather than perishable. It doesn't have the same issues my body has now. I won't be needing to go look for reading glasses. I won't be needing to to handle those things that have affected my body from the fall. So we see some of the verses there. Romans 8.30 And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And you see the, this golden chain of salvation and redemption. And you see predestination. You see calling. You see justification. But it, but it, it concludes with glorified bodies in heaven. Glorification. So this should be something we look forward to. 1 Corinthians 15.51 Another great passage as we do, deal with this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. And he's speaking to the church here, to believers. That is not a verse for the nursery, although it may apply. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Never mind. (laughs) I've seen it posted in churches in the nursery. I, I I couldn't resist. But it's saying that not everyone will die. Some will be caught up together with the Lord in heaven but we will all be changed. Our bodies will all be glorified in that first resurrection in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And now we again get into the realm of, okay, what exactly does that look like? I don't know exactly what it looks like. I don't know how tall we'll be or how short we'll be or what age we'll be. That's not the point. The point is God is changing us and taking away the imperfections from the fall and restoring creation to Himself. And so we know that it will be imperishable. It will be immortal. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. He's the one changing us. He raises us just as He saved us. And it is going to be incredible. I think we need to really look forward to this. And we don't talk about it much, and so we don't look forward to it much, but it is going to be glorious. And finally, the last phrase in that first statement is forever to be with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. And going back to our chart, just to sort of orient our time, so we have Christ, um, the first resurrection at Christ's return, the seven-year tribulation, and then the thousand-year millennium, And then after that millennium, there's the great white throne judgment that we'll talk about when we talk about hell. But then the new heaven and the new earth. Turn with me to Revelation 21. should be just over a page. Revelation 21. I'd like to read God's description of what this eternal state looks like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Catch that phrase? That is key to the eternal state. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. Oh, that gets me excited. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I get you a little excited? I would bet as we read that, different parts of that description resonated with different ones. But a couple of things that I want to point out out of that passage just briefly. God here is creating a new heaven and an earth for us to live in. He is creating this. But verse 3 gives the central point of understanding the eternal state. We will eternally be in the presence of God. He says He will dwell with us, live with us, settle with us, take up residence. And when we think of heaven, we so many times can be tempted to define heaven in earthly pleasures, like I mentioned before, and on all these earthly aspects. And so you get questions like, will there be baseball in heaven? Or I've I've been asked, will will our pets be in heaven? And all these these questions. The central point is we will be dwelling with and seeing face-to-face God Almighty. Our Lord and Savior, everything else pales compared to that. There is no greater joy. Oh, church, we need to be excited about that. We need to put aside visions of heaven that are us just sitting on a white fluffy cloud with a harp and getting bored of the same music every day. That's not what heaven's like. It is eternity in relationship with God Almighty. We will know Him. John 17:3 says and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent 1 Corinthians 13:12 says for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now I know in part but then or then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known So when we think of the eternal state we should think eternal joy with God Almighty. Some other aspects of that verse He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. There's an identity there, a, a, a perfect identity as God's people, as His sons and daughters, as He has adopted us into His family. And then verse 4 is the verse we often come to about descriptions of heaven. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And what he's describing here is a very different world than the world we live in, isn't it? We live in a, a Genesis 3 world. Genesis 3 being the fall. Everywhere we look, we, we are dealing with the results of the fall, with the corruption, or, or the, the, we have been tainted as a world with the results of that fall. What we're seeing described here is not a Genesis 3 world. It is a world without sin. Not only you and I are without sin, but we won't be affected by other sin. And because of that, all of the results of the fall will be wiped away in this new heaven and new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more Remember, the wages of sin is death. It was part of the curse. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Genesis 3 world. This is incredible. We also know part of what we'll be doing in this new heaven and new earth is worshiping. In Revelation 22, 3-5, the next chapter, we read, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And So that's the first statement about the eternal state of the saved. That's the good news. That's the news we like to talk about. But the second statement has to do with the eternal state of those that reject Christ. The eternal state of the unsaved. And I'll read that statement. It's in your notes. We believe that the souls of the unsaved remain after death in conscious torment until the second resurrection. When with soul and body reunited, they shall appear at the great white throne judgment. And will be thrown into hell the lake of fire to suffer eternal conscious punishment. As we talk about hell, this can be a difficult concept to swallow because we try to put our perceptions of who God is and what God should do onto God. But His ways are not our ways. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And I re, I'm reminded of our discussion of the attributes of God a, a couple of years ago, and we talked about His righteousness and justice, and and we we talked about that God is always righteous, He is always just. If we come to Him and think He is not being just right now, the problem isn't Him; it is us. I encourage you to go back if if this is a struggle and you're saying, "Okay, I don't understand the justice of God," go back and listen to those messages where we explore that a little bit deeper, much deeper. But here our assumption is that God is just. He will do what He pleases. And we have to go with the truth of Scripture, not what I want Scripture to say. And so running through these statements, the first is conscious torment until the second resurrection. And this has to do with the intermediate state of those that die that don't know Christ. And again, the body and soul are separated and the soul immediately goes to torment. There is no in-between time where they get to lounge on a beach or something. The soul of those that aren't saved immediately enters judgment and punishment from God. In Matthew 10.28, we read, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And you see a differentiation between the body and the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And we're going to see some terminology. Sometimes we'll see death. Sometimes we'll see destroy. Sometimes we'll see everlasting punishment. And so we have to, to, to look at all of the Scriptures together. And as we're looking at interpreting Scripture, you always take the clearest passages to help you interpret the passages that aren't as clear. Does that make sense? So you, you take the, the ones that specifically say th- something and help you interpret those that aren't clear. For instance, here the word destroy... Some will say that, and especially there's a view that's um, annihilationism or conditional immortality that says that there is a hell, you go to hell for a time, and then after the time of your punishment is done, then your soul is destroyed and is no more. And, And I recognize that there are godly men that believe that, but our stance as a church is that that is not what God's Word teaches. And a word like destroy here, interestingly enough, if you look at how it's used throughout Scripture... And, and how the Greek was used at the time, it, it doesn't mean to cease to exist. It usually means a loss or a ruin or corruption. And so this word was used of barren land. This was destroyed land. It was used of ointment poured out of a bottle. It's lost. It's destroyed. It was used of um, cor- corruption or wineskin with holes. Where there, that wineskin is no longer useful for what it's, it was intended to be used for. And so hell is a final and utter loss to be in ruin. And so as we look at these verses, we want to, to understand those terminologies in that way. Turn over to Luke 16. I know I said we'd stay in Revelation. Let's just turn one other place. Luke 16. And this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And we want to be cautious with this story because it is a story that Jesus is telling, not an actual event. But he is describing the the intermediate state here. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, "'Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue.'" for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The decision is done. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. And he goes on to talk about that, and, and I encourage you to read on. But what we see is Jesus is placing the story in the context of events that were happening at that time. This is the intermediate state. This isn't the, the final state. And we see a consciousness, and for those that don't choose to follow Christ, a conscious torment. And that is hard to say. But it is what God's Word teaches. Our statement goes on. When with soul and body reunited, they shall appear at the great white throne judgment and will be thrown into hell, the lake of fire. And I have a a heading there. Hell is a just punishment. Hell is a just punishment we must remember that sin is an offense against an infinite God and requires God to respond. If God does not respond to sin, He is not a just God. We, and again, we talked about that when we talked about God's justice. And so God in His righteousness and justice must respond to sin, must, must punish sin, His wrath is an element of His justice. And it is right. And that, our culture, has a difficulty in swallowing. And and an offense against an infinite God requires an infinite response. In my opinion. As I think through the, the philosophy of that. But we'll see in Scripture it is an infinite response. Turn back to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, and we'll look at this second resurrection. So we come here and, and through the tribulation and the millennium, the eternal state of, or the, the intermediate state of the unsaved is in torment, and then at the Great White Throne, judgment is the second resurrection where those that do not know Christ are resurrected and judged before God at the Great White Throne. Revelation 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. Jump to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books And it says that they are judged by what they have done. And we know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The just result of our sin is death. And death is used a variety of different ways in the New Testament. But in this case, death is referring to this death, the second death of being thrown into the lake of fire, into hell. and suffering punishment for all eternity. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so you get this idea of continuation. But the wrath of God remains on him. And that wrath is a just wrath, a righteous response to sin that only the death of Christ can pay for like to move on to the next phrase. We're running out of time. To suffer eternal conscious punishment. Hell is everlasting. Hell is everlasting. It is eternal. To suffer eternal conscious punishment. Eternal conscious punishment means that the torment in hell is ongoing and without end. That's why sometimes we use the word everlasting. The idea that it lasts forever. And this is Again, a challenging doctrine that challenges our our, our assumptions about who God is and how He should act. But let's look at what Scripture says in Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Contempt that doesn't end. And, and it's interesting because Daniel here is using something that would happen in their culture where bodies would, could be cast off by the side and, and passers-by would see these dead, rotting corpses. And they would taunt and revile them. There would be shame there and there would be contempt that represented the revulsion and loathing that those passersby bys felt. But as those bodies decayed, it would pass and it would be no more. And so Daniel here is... is Comparing that as a contempt that ends to a contempt that never ends and lasts forever. The point of this passage is that it's everlasting. It continues. Mark nine, forty-three through forty-eight. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Very key phrase. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And here he's quoting Isaiah 66, 24. 22 through 24 are helpful in the Isaiah passage. Because Isaiah is, is also talking about this idea of unending punishment. In fact, turn to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 26, 22-24 For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth there. But then he compares that with those that have not chosen Christ. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Very similar to the Daniel passage, incidentally. But here he's comparing that the new heaven and earth remain and last forever. And so the fire is not to be quenched, and it will also last forever. The fire of that punishment. There are a number of things we can go into, but we just don't have the the time this morning, and so we're giving an overview and hopefully spurring further study. Matthew 25. It's a key passage. Matthew 25, and this is the passage on the sheep and the goats. If you remember, Jesus calls, it's the great white throne judgment, and He has the sheep there, and He has the goats there, and The goats he ends up judging because they had not chosen Christ and their actions were not um, that of those that had chosen Christ. They were goats. And he says, Then he will say to those on his left, which are the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you have the concept of eternal fire. You also have the concept that there is an identification that the judgment of the unsaved will be that of the devil and his angels. And we'll see that in other verses as we compare Scripture. 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous in eternal, to eternal life. And again, the word for eternal here means everlasting. A period of unending duration, without End. And a key to understanding how he's using it is verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And those are are contrasting, they're they're parallel, but in contrast with with each other. And so how we understand eternal life is how we have to understand eternal punishment. And so if we believe that eternal life means, means eternity in the presence of God then you must come to the conclusion that eternal punishment there is eternity in punishment, in hell. One scholar said, Moses Stewart said, we must either admit the endless misery of hell or give up the endless happiness of heaven. This also, like I said, we share the same fate as the devil and his angels We see that as a cross-reference with Revelation 20.10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And here, Jesus is saying, you'll be thrown into that place and punished with the devil and his angels. That's sobering. but it is an aspect of the justice and righteousness of God. There's a couple of other thoughts about hell that are are beyond our statement there. Hell is real. Hell is real. And and that may seem like obvious statement of the day, but it's not in our culture. And whether or not we believe hell is real will often affect the seriousness in which we take the eternal state. Do I believe that those people standing in line in front of me at the grocery store might be spending eternity in hell? And do I agree with this description of hell? Man, that makes a difference. There's a reason why Jesus talked about hell over and over and over again. Just a sampling and there's There's a lot more. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. We already read, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul, the soul and the body in hell. And Jesus warned and warned and warned against a real punishment in a real place. What that looks like, exactly we don't, we aren't told. but we know it's real in a place of eternal punishment. And that should motivate us to action, as Jesus was doing with those words. It should motivate us to share the good news of the gospel. Because the good news is people don't have to be punished for all eternity if they will simply take the free gift of Jesus Christ, His salvation on the cross. If they will simply say, I have sinned and I repent of my sins. And I follow you, Jesus. Because then He pays that penalty for those sins. And as God Himself, fully God, He pays that penalty completely. And we are righteous with his righteousness. And we go to eternity with God in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. What is hell like? The last point there, and I'll just give you the the blanks. I liked how a couple authors wrote it hell is horrible. Hell is horrible. It's eternal separation from God. I encourage you to read the Second Thessalonians passage. It's eternal torment. We've already read some of those passages. And torment is always used of a conscious torment, a conscious suffering and pain every time it's, that word is used in the New Testament. It's a place of no rest. Day and night without rest as contrasted with the eternal state of the believer who enter into heavenly rest. It's a place that Matthew describes at least six different times as outer darkness of wailing and gnashing of teeth, of agonizing lament. Peter describes it as the gloom of utter darkness. When Jesus says it's better for your hand to be cut off or it's better for you to drown than to enter the fires of hell, He's saying that hell is worse than anything we can imagine on earth. Death, dismemberment, drowning... I don't want to go by drowning. Hell is worse than any of that. And so we come to clear scriptural teaching that there are penalties for a choice of rejecting Christ or consequences, a just judgment and a just punishment. But through belief in Jesus Christ, there is eternity in the presence of God in a new heaven and a new earth, eternally in joy with our Lord and Savior. I challenge you this morning, if you haven't decided whether or not to follow Christ, if you haven't decided whether or not to repent of your sins, your choice makes an eternal difference. Choose Christ. He freely... In his love seeks us out and offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty of death that we deserve. But we must choose to follow him and repent of our sins for our eternal state to change. Let's pray. Lord God. I pray if there's anyone here that hasn't chosen to follow You, that the truth of Scripture today would change that. And they would follow You with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, for every believer that is here, I pray that it would change how we look at people. That it would change the urgency in which we share the Gospel. That this isn't just trying to convince someone to agree with us This is trying to save someone from an eternal state of punishment. Lord, I pray that we would take your word seriously and do everything we can to reach a lost world with the good news, the great news of your gospel. In Jesus' name.